Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. One of the most important questions that you can ask a skeptic about the resurrection of Jesus Christ is if it can be proved that Jesus really rose from the dead, would you believe in him? Now, because Jesus' prediction that he would raise himself from the dead was fulfilled three days after his death, he demonstrated his own divinity, or in other words, he demonstrated that he was God and is God. That means that his other claims are also validated. Rudolf Boltman, who is the most prominent 20th century New Testament critic, possibly the most prominent of all time, with the exception of maybe Bart Ehrman now rivaling him in influence, said that if the bones of the dead Jesus were discovered tomorrow in a Palestinian tomb, all the essentials of Christianity would remain unchanged. However, according to the Apostle Paul, this could not be farther from the truth. According to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection is not true, then our proclamation is in vain. Our faith is in vain. If the resurrection is not true, we are misrepresenting God, which is one of the worst charges that a Christian could receive. If the resurrection is not true, our faith is futile, or in other words, pointless. If the resurrection is not true, then we are still in our sins and we are still under the wrath of God If the resurrection is not true, then those in Christ who have died in every martyr throughout Christian history has perished, and we will do the same. And if the resurrection is not true, and most foolishly of all, we of all people are most to be pitied. People should look down upon us. People should feel bad for how silly we are if Christians are wrong about the resurrection. These are not my words. These are the words of the Apostle Paul in inspired scripture, 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus' bones were found tomorrow in a tomb somewhere, not only would Christianity change, Christianity would be dead. The Apostle Paul makes this absolutely clear. Without the resurrection, there's no Christianity. And this is why we need to be prepared to defend the truth of the resurrection. And this is why skeptics seek to disprove the resurrection. Because they know that if the resurrection doesn't exist, out goes Christianity. So we're going to talk about some of the main objections and counter theories to the resurrection over the next couple of episodes and why none of these arguments have been sufficient to disprove the resurrection. But first, we are doing a special promo right now for our resurrection series that you are currently listening to. And as you may be aware... Um, We're currently in a series about demonstrating the truth of the resurrection from every angle we can possibly think of and give you the facts to help you understand and defend the most important event in history. Well, starting this upcoming week, we're going to have Dr. Mike Lacona on just a few days after his big debate with Bart Ehrman, who is by far the most prominent New Testament critic of our time. In fact, they're calling this the debate, the debate, the debate to end all debates. And we're going to get the full scoop from Dr. Lacona literally days after this event takes place. And then he will be followed by Gary Habermas, who will appear in our show. And Gary Habermas, for those of you who don't know, is like the authority today on the resurrection. 
Uh, in fact, both of them together wrote the book, The Case for the Resurrection. This is a groundbreaking book on evidence for the resurrection. And if you send a question about the resurrection to information at apologetics.org, not only will we answer your question live and possibly, if it's in in time, we might have Dr. Lacona or Dr. Habermas answer it, but we're also going to choose 10 people to send a free copy of The Case for the Resurrection, the most groundbreaking book on the resurrection of our time. Uh, so send an email with your question about the resurrection to information at apologetics.org. So one of the main objections to the resurrection that seems to pop up over and over again is what's called the swoon theory. Now, swoon sounds like a funny word, but it basically means to pass out. And this theory essentially means uh, that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He only appeared to be dead. So he swooned. He fainted from an extreme condition. Now, before we get into why this can't be the case, it is important to recognize that the vast majority of scholars have concluded that Jesus died of crucifixion. The teaching that Jesus didn't truly die on the cross comes from the Quran, uh, which was written over 600 years after Jesus' crucifixion. Therefore, this isn't even almost a reliable source, considering that the gospel narratives are written just within decades of the crucifixion by eyewitnesses, not people 600 years later with a theological motive. And our, our earliest manuscript is from just after 100 AD, which is incredible when you look at the scope of uh, history and textual criticism. Now, this theory was peddled by Karl Barth and others in the 19th century, and then more recently, this theory has been recycled many times through books such as the Jesus Scroll in 1972, Holy Blood, Holy Grail in 1982, Jesus and the Riddle of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1992, and so on and so forth, but these books all have two things in common. Number one, there is no evidence to back up the theory that Jesus survived the cross. Number two... Their claim goes against all available evidence that we have in abundance. And when I say abundance, I mean it is ridiculous how reliable the biblical manuscripts are. In fact, uh, Dan Wallace made a comparison where he said if you take all of the ancient Greek manuscripts from around that time, all of them, and put them in a pile, it'd be about four feet high. Well, if you take the New Testament manuscripts and you put them in a pile— it wouldn't be as tall as a football field. It wouldn't be as tall as the Empire State Building. It would be a mile and a quarter tall. That is how many manuscripts we have of the New Testament between the first century and the early 1400s before the Gutenberg Press when they started printing books instead of manually copying them, which is what manuscript means. So we are going to give eight refutations of this objection to the resurrection, but something to keep in mind is that we're not arguing to try and prove the resurrection. We're not on our backs kicking around. The resurrection is already proven. We are simply defending and demonstrating its truthfulness. So the claim that Jesus did not die on the cross stems from the fact that desperate uh, skeptics have to come up with an alternative to the resurrection. They cannot look at the evidence unbiasedly if they want to hold on to their view that miracles cannot happen, something that's referred to as anti-supernaturalism. So as a result, they have no choice but to force their bias into the historical data instead of observing it objectively and honestly like the Christian can do with these manuscripts. And not to mention, as I said earlier, the vast majority of scholars agree that Jesus died of crucifixion, so this is just not a probable uh, theory. 
Now, number one, the first refutation, and one of the most obvious we can bring, uh, and therefore the one that we'll probably spend the most time on, is that Jesus could not have survived the crucifixion. The horrific nature of Roman crucifixion is described in extra-biblical sources outside of Scripture by Josephus in the first century, by Cicero in the first century BC, uh, by Tacitus in the second century, he refers to the crucifixion as the extreme penalty. So the crucifixion is a well-known uh, way of execution in the time of Jesus. This isn't something that just popped up thousands of years later. We, we are well aware of what the crucifixion is. Now, it's not possible that Jesus could have survived the crucifixion. In just a moment, I'm going to give you some details of the crucifixion that are very gruesome. But an important point to note is that Roman soldiers, when they were committing capital punishment, when they were crucifying victims, their life was on the line as well. Because if these victims were to have survived, if these victims were to have gotten away, the Roman soldier would be killed. That was their penalty. Now, not only is this a very good incentive for making sure that criminals are dead, but we also don't have any evidence of a criminal getting away and uh, therefore a Roman soldier being killed. There's no evidence of one of them letting a, a criminal get away from the cross. So the first thing is that Jesus could not have survived the crucifixion. Now, if you've ever read The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, it's a very good book. Um, it's, it's a mainstream Christian apologetics book, so if you haven't heard of it, I would suggest ordering it. But in this book, he at the time was a skeptic, and he was a journalist. So he went through and he interviewed all kinds of scholars um, trying to get to the bottom of this Jesus story. He was a skeptic and didn't think Jesus existed or didn't think he died and resurrected, and he wanted to prove this. And, of course, he ended up becoming a Christian believer and has influenced people all over the world and is still doing so today. Well, he interviewed a doctor named Alexander Metherell, and in this story... He says, Roman floggings were known to be terribly brutal. They usually consisted of 39 lashes, but frequently were a lot more than that, depending on the mood of the soldier applying the blows. So the 39 lashes comes from uh, the Jewish law where they would give 40 lashes for punishment, but they would often do 39. They called it the 40 minus 1 lashes. And this is because they didn't want to accidentally miscount by one or two uh, end up going over 40, and now they're guilty of breaking the law of God while giving the punishment. So they would do 39 lashes. For all of you math wizards out there, uh, 40 minus 1 is 39. And so they would have whipped him at least 39 times. Now keep in mind, I think this is something that we need to spend more time on in general. Uh, keep in mind that the Jewish authorities wanted Jesus arrested and had Jesus presented a pilot, but it was the Roman soldiers who were doing the flogging. So 39 lashes is bad enough, and we'll explain why in a minute, but it could have been more. They could have very easily taken the authority into their own hands and ignored the Jewish leaders and whipped Jesus as much as they could have wanted to. Now, this is not an ordinary whip that they would beat the prisoners with. Um, this isn't like the whip that you would see back in the days where they would hit a horse to make him go. Uh, this is a torturing device. Uh, the whip, as pointed out here, had metal balls woven into it. It would have pieces of bone and pieces of glass, and when they hit the prisoner with it, they would rip it off, and it would literally rip off parts of their skin. Like, that's how brutal this torturing was. And so it would cause deep bruises, contusions, they would be bloodied. Um, it would cause lacerations. In fact, he says the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. 
as Eusebius, who's a famous church historian, described crucifixion, the sufferer's veins were laid bare, and the very muscles, sinews, and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. So that's how hideous this torture was, that it was exposing the inside of their body as their flesh was being torn from them, not to mention uh, Jesus already having a crown of thorns on his head, causing bleeding from his head. Uh, Many people would die, he points out, not even just from the crucifixion, but from before they even got to the cross. Often they would be dead because of this torture. Um, At the very least, he would have faced hypovolemic shock, which for those of you who aren't medical experts, uh, like I am not a medical expert, Hypo means low, vol refers to volume, and emic means blood. So hypovolemic basically means that the person had such a low amount of blood in their body that they would end up fainting because of the lack of blood. He goes on and says, uh, that's because historians are unanimous that Jesus survived the beating and went on to the cross, which is where the real issue lies. So now he's transferring from the torturing to the cross, but he points out that most historians agree that Jesus survived the beating by some miracle and went to the cross. Now, the Romans used spikes that were five to seven inches long and tapered to a sharp point, uh, and they were driven through the wrist and through the feet. Now, of course, we know this is true because they have found Roman crucifixion victims with nails this size. They were five to seven inches. They were, I think, about, I don't remember how wide, but they were wide. They were meant to stick through somebody and hold them onto a piece of wood. So we're not talking about some little ordeal here. Uh, The nail would go through the place where the median nerve runs, and that nerve would be crushed by the nail. At this point, Lee Strobel asks, what sort of pain would that have produced? He says, let me put it this way. Do you know the kind of pain you feel when you bang your elbow and hit your funny bone? Well, actually, another nerve called the ulna nerve. It's extremely painful when you accidentally hit it. Well, picture taking a pair of pliers and squeezing and crushing that nerve. He said, emphasizing the word squeezing as he twisted an imaginary pair of pliers. That effect would be similar to what Jesus experienced. So now he's talking about just the pain, just the sensation from the nail going through the wrist or the hand alone would have caused this severe pain, like somebody taking your funny bone and twisting it with pliers. That is just something I can't even imagine. Um, He goes on to say the pain was absolutely unbearable. In fact, it was literally beyond words to describe. They had to invent a new word, excruciating, which literally means out of the cross. So the crucifixion was so gruesome and so terrible that they had to invent a word uh, in order to describe how horrible this punishment was. His arms would have been immediately stretched, probably about six inches in length, and both both shoulders would become desolate. Um, The crucifixion is essentially an as agonizingly slow death uh, by asphyxiation. And then he goes on to say, after managing to exhale, the person would then be able to relax down and take another breath in. Again, he'd have to push himself up to exhale, scraping his bloodied back against the coarse wood of the cross. This would go on and on until complete exhaustion would take over and the person wouldn't be able to push up and breathe anymore. So now he's telling us that the the crucified victim would have to try to pull themselves up to breathe. And of course, you have hands tearing away at your, or you have nails tearing away at your hands or your wrists. You have nails tearing away at your feet, and you're already bloodied up from being beaten before you're brought to the cross. And each time you breathe, you're trying to pull yourself up, and the victim would get weaker and weaker and weaker, which would cause asphyxiation. He says, as the person slows down his breathing, he goes into what is called respiratory acidosis. The carbon dioxide in the blood is dissolved 
as carbonic acid causing the acidity of the blood to increase. This eventually leads to an irregular heartbeat. In fact, with his heart beating erratically, Jesus would have known that he was at the moment of death, which is when he was able to say, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit, and then he died of cardiac arrest. And of course, we know this because John, who was at the cross, uh, witnessed the blood and water come out of Jesus after the Romans had stuck the spear into his side, um, which is going to lead us into number two in just a moment here because they kind of tie in together. But the soldiers, this is important to note, already recognized that Jesus was dead before they stuck the spear in his side. Because as the scriptures point out, and this is number two, actually, as John points out, they didn't break his legs when they walked by. Normally, if a crucifixion victim was dying on the cross and they were still alive, eventually the soldiers would come and they would break the legs of the victim, and that way they could take the victim off the cross and get them buried and get it over with. Well, when they got to Jesus, they broke the two legs of the two criminals on either side of him, but they left Jesus alone because they looked at him and already recognized that he was dead. They stuck a spear into his side and water and blood came out. Now, of course, water and blood we know now with modern Um, medical sciences means that he died of asphyxiation. Well, John wouldn't have known this. When John recorded that water and blood came out, he was simply recording the actual event in front of his eyes. Remember that John, uh, the apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was a witness at the cross. All of the other apostles were hiding, but John and the women were there at the cross watching the crucifixion. They watched the burial, and that's why you see so much detail about the cross in the Gospel of John compared to the synoptics. And so they didn't break his legs because they already recognized he was dead. And keep in mind that the Roman soldiers, if they were wrong and Jesus wasn't really dead and somehow someone took him away or he got away, they would have had their lives taken. So the second thing is they didn't break his legs because he was so dead. There is no way they could a crucifixion victim could have survived this kind of torture. Number three, uh, the body was totally encased in winding sheets and entombed. Remember that according to John's account, um, of course, all four Gospels say Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus down from the cross before the Sabbath, before the sundown and the Sabbath began. But John also tells us that Nicodemus had joined him and Nicodemus had brought 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe. And so Jesus would have been anointed with this myrrh and aloe. He would have been wrapped in linen. He would have had his face wrapped and he would have been placed in a tomb and then a rolling rock would have closed that tomb. Well, we're not talking about somebody like a lively figure sitting in a tomb waiting for somebody to release him. We're talking about someone who's dead, who's placed in linens, and who's put in the tomb meant to be there forever. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus did not think Jesus was coming out of that tomb. Um, Not to mention all the apostles uh, misunderstood his point about the resurrection as well, which we'll get to later. They didn't know he was going to raise from the dead. And so they were hiding. They were terrified. They thought their life was over. But Jesus was totally encased in sheets and he was entombed. He was not meant to come out. Number five, um, the post-resurrection appearances convinced the disciples Now, we're going to get into the eyewitness points further down the road because we're going to expand on this a lot, but it's really important to recognize that there is at least 12 instances in Scripture where Jesus uh, appears to people post-mortem, after he's already dead and buried. So he appeared to all of the apostles. He appeared to 500 witnesses at one time, and we'll get into that down the road. That's the only only real theory they have against that is the 
the twin theory, which is basically laughable. It's that Jesus had a twin that none of his brothers or family apparently had ever heard of. Um, or the hallucination theory, where 500 people hallucinate at one time for the only time in history. Now, we're going to cover those down the road, and they're going to take more time on their own. But he appeared to 500 people at one time who were still alive when Paul recorded this in 1 Corinthians 15. Many of them were. He appeared to all the apostles, and he appeared to James, who was a skeptic. James wanted nothing to do uh, with believing that Jesus was God until Jesus raised from the dead and appeared to him. And then, of course, he became the uh, the head of the church in Jerusalem. Now, the apostles also had no idea, as we mentioned, that Jesus was going to raise from the dead. And this is what I would call kind of a common sense argument, because to say that the apostles all of a sudden went out and changed the world after a staggering sick dead man walked up to them in desperate need of medical attention, there's no way they could have gone out and, and spread the gospel and shared that Jesus had resurrected from the dead triumphantly if he was walking to them like a zombie. I mean, this just this just by common sense doesn't, doesn't fit. And so uh, the post-resurrection appearances convinced the disciples that Jesus had raised from the dead. This is a very important point, and like I said, we're going to put more focus on this later down the road when we get to the witnesses, but it's important to recognize that there were witnesses of seeing Jesus alive in a new glorified body after he had raised from the dead. This is one of those points that you really don't have to overthink. Uh, the apostles had no way of of overthrowing the guards and moving the tomb and stealing the body. And even if they did somehow have a way to do that, there's no motive. What, they wanted to go and be uh, world famous for having everybody hate them? They wanted to be homeless and, and without a lot of money? They wanted to spend their time traveling and being beaten and kicked out of cities and, and ridiculed? There's no motivation for the apostles to uh, want to convince people Jesus raised from the dead if they knew that he didn't. So they had no motive to do it. They had no reason, and they didn't have the ability to do it. Uh, we're talking about a rolling rock's uh, tomb where the rock was placed there in order to keep the body in forever. This was a very heavy boulder that had to be put in place by a number of strong men, and it was guarded by Roman soldiers who could have very easily wiped the apostles out if they came and tried something uh, at night, especially considering that the lives of the Roman soldiers were on the line. So number five, how could a swooning half-dead man have moved the great stone at the door of the tomb? If Jesus was half alive, if he was dying, if he was as the, the uh, medical doctor Alexander Metherell had just described to us, if he was so close to death that it's a miracle he even made it to the cross, how could this man release himself from a tomb? How could this man remove the rock and, and help himself out? And remember, we're not yet focusing on uh, the conspiracy theories necessarily. We're not focusing on the apostles uh, stealing him. That's not our focus right now. Our focus is that Jesus didn't really die, that Jesus himself faked his own death, or perhaps he didn't fake his own death and thought he was going to die but didn't die, and released himself from the tomb. There's no possible way that he could have done this. No one has been able to answer this question. In fact, that's why scripture posits that it was an angel who removed the tomb, because this this is such a, a heavy boulder, it was meant to be there forever. It wasn't meant to be removed. Um, and this is why the Jewish authorities had to spread the myth that the guards had fallen asleep and the disciples stole the body. And like I said, we're going to focus on that in a later episode. But this is just common sense logic. It's just not believable. Next, if Jesus awoke from a swoon, where did he go? 
So if Jesus faked his own death, if he didn't really raise from the dead, why are there no accounts about Jesus in history aside from him appearing to the people over the 40 days? Why aren't there accounts of what he did with his life? Why aren't there accounts of um, somebody finding him hiding? Why aren't there accounts of his tomb? I mean, we have Muhammad's tomb, we have Buddha's tomb, we have King David's tomb. There's no tomb for Jesus Christ dying a second time later in life. Uh, Where did he go? There's absolutely no data about the life of Jesus after his crucifixion, except for the narratives of the resurrection. That is all we have for Jesus after his life. There's no other conflicting stories. And finally, the swoon theory necessarily turns into either the conspiracy theory or the hallucination theory, because we had mentioned that Jesus had appeared to eyewitnesses. There's no way for them to refute this except to say that it was a hallucination, which will explain why that doesn't make any sense. But otherwise, it turns into the conspiracy theory because the apostles said that Jesus raised from the dead. They would have had to have been lying. So this turns into to a conspiracy where either Jesus or the apostles planned to take Jesus and pretend that he had raised from the dead. It's the, the greatest conspiracy. It'd have to be the greatest conspiracy in all of history. But this is something that has no evidence for it. This is something that cannot be proven. Um, it is without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected three days later. But in order to resurrect, he had to first be dead and placed in a tomb. And as we've demonstrated, and as even secular scholars agree with, Jesus was dead on the cross. There is no way somebody could survive crucifixion. Well, thank you for listening to The Universe Next Door. As we mentioned earlier, send a question about the resurrection to information at apologetics.org during this series so that we can answer that live over the year, uh, possibly with Dr. Mike Lacona or Dr. Gary Habermas. And we hope that you share this with somebody. We hope that you think about these arguments if you are a skeptic. And we hope that as we asked in the beginning of the episode, you will take the evidence, you would put your faith in Jesus Christ and believe that he is sufficient to save you from your sin. Well, thank you for listening, and we'll see you back here next week on The Universe Next Door. You've been listening to The Universe Next Door with Dr. Tom Woodward, sponsored by the C.S. Lewis Society and Trinity College of Florida and supported through the gifts of listeners just like you. To gather resources, continue the conversation, and support The Universe Next Door with your financial gifts, go to apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. And join us again next time as we continue to seek the truth about life, faith, and worldview in The Universe Next Door. Next Door.